fellow travelers, and welcome to Adventures in Security, episode 47 for March 25th, 2007. I'm your host, Tom Olzak. You can find the information covered in our episodes at adventuresinsecurity.com on the podcast page. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like me to talk about, please send email to podcasts at adventuresinsecurity.com. In this episode, we have three feature topics. The value of external pen tests, the sad reality about software assurance, and how to protect yourself from ad hoc wireless networks. The featured material is taken from my weekly contributions to techrepublic.com, a source of valuable information for all technology professionals. Now let's take a look at uh, some of the things that happened last week. Kaspersky Labs' Eugene Kaspersky and F-Secure's Miko Hypenin spoke out about the growing difficulties in keeping up with cybercriminals. In a speech at CBIT in Hanover, Germany, Kaspersky stated flatly that, and I quote, If the growth in malware continues at the current pace, makers of antivirus software may not be able to withstand the onslaught. End quote. I put in second Kaspersky's concern, stating that it's getting very difficult to deal with the 40,000 suspected files his company receives from customers each day. According to Sokolov's article, experts warn against computer viruses could be lost on onslaught onslaught spreads in the Gulf Times of 18 March 2007. Cybercriminals have advantages that they exploit with ever-increasing frequency, including... First, the sheer volume of malware and the fact that criminal activity on the Internet knows no national borders make it almost impossible to effectively deal with malware threats. Kaspersky recommends creating an international police agency similar to Interpol to aid in intelligence gathering and a cross-border sharing of information. Second, the innocence of humans, or as I call it, gullibility, that allows criminals to trick them into installing malware on their machines responding to phishing attacks, and other social engineering-type activities. Third, malware production is turning into a worldwide industry. According to Natalia Kaspersky, co-founder of Kaspersky Lab, criminal organizations are paying programmers the kind of salary that she could never afford. And finally, the cost of services delivered is low for malware-producing companies. The systems and the resources required to operate them are provided by the infected home or business owner. Our next uh, story has to do with the Xbox Live support team being unable to keep a secret. It seems that the Xbox Live support team hasn't heard about pretexting or social engineering. In a recent article in Computer World, evidence is provided that appears to be irrefutable proof that just about anyone can obtain information necessary to steal user identities. The article was by Greg Kaiser and is entitled, Are Xbox Live Support Staff Helping Hackers Hijack Accounts? And it appeared on 22 March 2007. Microsoft insists that user gullibility is to blame. However, I doubt that will stand up to the recorded conversation in which support personnel gave out personal information. You have to wonder how a very large company can provide a support staff without a clue. I'm not saying that everyone is clueless, but there seem to be enough clueless employees to ensure a generous flow of personal information to game hackers. In my opinion, there's absolutely 
no excuse for a company to which users have entrusted personal information to not take appropriate steps to ensure that the information doesn't leak via social engineering tactics. I work for a large healthcare company. We periodically perform social engineering tests. These tests are unannounced so that the targeted employees and their managers react as they would under normal circumstances. I won't tell you the results, and they're not perfect, but I can tell you that, th that if this happened, if this level of data leakage happened at our organization, heads would roll. And all we use is annual compliance training. Makes you wonder just how much or how little training these support people received. And our final news item has to do with information I saw in, a, in an article called College Campuses Especially Vulnerable to Hackers by Paul D. Rosevere. College campuses are notorious for leaving their networks wide open to internal users. A few months ago, at a hacking prevention course, I was discussing this issue with a security manager from a local university. She told me that it was a continuous battle to maintain any level of reasonable network assurance. Restricted from implementing internet surfing restrictions or strong remote access controls, her network was frequently infected by malware or worse. And this doesn't seem to be an isolated situation. The nature of higher education is open access to information. This means allowing the free flow of internet data through a university's perimeter. According to Rosevere, it's estimated that about 50% of college websites are exploitable, with 75% of hacks attributable to weak security controls. In addition to vulnerabilities caused by network weaknesses, college students are also favorite targets of phishing attacks to get them to sign up for credit cards and other services that prompt for personal information. Even when providing personal information to a known good site, the probability that the network or PC is compromised is too high not to take steps to protect it. College students accessing the Internet or college network have little choice but to install on their PCs a full range of protected software, including personal firewalls, antivirus software, anti-spyware software, anti-phishing software, and, if possible, host-based intrusion prevention software. And now to our first feature segment, which is entitled, Do External Pen Tests Have Any Value? When you talk about external penetration or pen testing with a group of security managers, the discussion can get a little heated. There seems to be a lot of passion about whether pen tests are a waste of time or a necessary tool for security controls management. I believe the effectiveness, or not, of pen testing is related to approach and expectation setting. Adherence to the pen tests are useless position assert that it's the penetration testers who benefit most from this futile exercise. Next in line are security managers who either need proof for the auditors that they are actually looking for vulnerabilities and those who use the myriad vulnerabilities discovered to justify additional budget. This group of naysayers believes that the best approach is to simply deploy policies, standards, guidelines, and infrastructure as part of a well-designed security program. On the opposite side are the security managers who believe that testing is necessary. After all, how can you identify weaknesses in your perimeter if you don't test for them? Further, they contend that, contend that it is important to show management and the auditors that you're looking for and correcting all potential attack paths to your information assets. This includes a complete scan of all ports and services across all public-facing devices. I fall between these two positions. 
Yes, I believe that pen testing with no clear agenda is a waste of time. I also believe that the lack of focused testing is negligent. A pen test should focus on an organization's public IP addresses, scanning for the top known vulnerabilities, for example, the SANS Top 20. The purpose of the test should be to validate that the steps taken to secure the perimeter are good enough. I never expect to eliminate all vulnerabilities. However, I do strive to reduce risks from these vulnerabilities to a point where business impact from a successful exploit is at an acceptable level. I also don't care about the raw data. We engage a managed security services provider to perform an automated scan as well as aggregation and correlation of collected data. We're then presented with a portal view of what the data mean. This allows us to compare quarterly scan results to a baseline and to expected results to verify that our controls are working as expected. The cost of an automated penetration test isn't very much, but it provides valuable validation of controls. Although we're required by our auditors to perform a pen test, we don't hold up the results as proof that our network is absolutely secure. There will always be some level of risk. Rather, we portray the portal information as just one more input into our continuous security improvement efforts. Our next feature segment is entitled, The Sad Reality About Software Assurance. In today's world of increasing threats targeting our data for profit, as well as the spread of governmentally imposed constraints, I believe that the major software vendors had gotten the message, practice due diligence in making your software secure. However, I was recently disillusioned. Several months ago, we selected an application for one of our lines of business. The selection was based on functional and technical specifications, including security. We were told at the time that users wouldn't have direct access to the database, which will contain HIPAA and SOX-regulated information. That would be a violation of what I call the integrity rule. The vendor team who sold us the product was wrong. And just to be clear, the vendor team that we worked with included not only salespeople, but also technical people. The integrity rule includes a requirement that read and write access can only be allowed via an application interface. This provides for a layer of controls between the user and the data, as well as providing full transaction tracking capability. Practically, this means that only database administrators or database or data engineers should be able to modify tables without going through the application. Well, enter our application vendor. The application, which will remain nameless, has two methods of authentication, AD account pass-through and SQL. Pass-through authentication allows a user to automatically authenticate to the application using her Active Directory credentials. In this scenario, all users have public access to all tables if they establish a connection to the database server. Nice security. All users that have access to the application have full access to the database tables outside the application. With SQL authentication, and this uh, application uses Microsoft SQL Server, a single service account logs into the database and provides the communication channel between the application and the data. So far, so good. The problem arises when we examine the implementation of the database. All tables are still open for public access. This was a result of the vendor running a script that provided DBO access to public. 
replacing the database server within a tightly controlled VLAN, with only the DBAs having access directly to it, seemed to be a good workaround. However, we need to provide read-only access to the application support team. Allowing them any access to the database provides them with read-write access. Our auditors would have a field day with this. We took these issues to the vendor. The first response was that none of their other customers were complaining, complaining, inferring that we were just whiners. After we escalated beyond this very helpful individual, we had a conversation with one of the vendor's engineers. After we spent about 15 minutes trying to explain why their approaches to security were a bad idea, we asked if we couldn't just restrict public access to the service account in the SQL authentication scenario. This would allow us to create separate read-only accounts for the application support team. At least we thought this was a good idea. The engineer pushed back a little and told us that he'd have to check with the developers to see if this would work. He wasn't familiar with this approach. I believe this will work itself out. However, I'm concerned that a company that markets software to publicly traded healthcare companies isn't more in tune with SOX and HIPAA requirements. It's also a lesson for us that just because a vendor account team smiles, nods, and affirms HIPAA and SOX compliance, they might actually have no idea what we're talking about. And now to our final feature segment, which is entitled, Protect Your Laptop from Ad Hoc Wireless Networks. Over the past several months, there have been a host of articles written about an issue with the Windows XP's default wireless settings. The issue discussed is the automatic search for and connection to computer-to-computer wireless networks without user intervention. In this episode, I'm going to take a quick look at why this happens, the potential risks, and the Microsoft patch that can fix the problem. So let's first take a look at how this works. Windows XP Wireless is configured to connect to either an infrastructure wireless node or an ad hoc node. An infrastructure node is an access point, or AP, connected to a wired network. Ad hoc nodes are computers with wireless capabilities to which other computers can connect. When a laptop with wireless auto configuration enabled is powered up, it first looks for the presence of an infrastructure network in its preferred wireless network list. If it fails to locate one, it attempts to connect to the first ad hoc connection in the list. Failing to locate a known ad hoc network, XP begins sending probe packets looking for available wireless networks. Anyone observing packets flowing through RF in a coffee shop, airplane, or lounge can establish a connection with the probing computer. When a laptop establishes an ad hoc network with an unknown device, it typically enters the network into its list as free public Wi-Fi. Once on the list, it becomes one of the networks on the laptop's preferred list. These ad hoc network entries have spread across enough laptops that it isn't uncommon to connect to an ad hoc network in a public place that includes several devices, whether or not the connection is known to the computer's owners. So why should we care? Well, laptops connected to ad hoc networks can potentially communicate with systems that are infected by malware. This can allow the spread of a worm, for example, across most or all laptops in a local cafe. Another vulnerability is created when a malicious user of an ad hoc network node uses the available connections to crack into member systems. This can result in data leakage or data destruction. Another challenge is related to how an XP-based laptop flips between wireless connections. 
With wireless auto configuration enabled, XP may drop a connection to one access point to move to another with a stronger signal. This may be a serious problem if the second AP is not part of the user's network. So what can you do about this? Well, the best solution is a patch for Windows XP S Service Pack 2 that helps secure wireless auto configuration, including turning off the probe packets. It also forces a user to select a wireless network from a list via a dialog box. This patch is not included in Service Pack 2 or in any auto updates. You have to manually download it from the Microsoft site. You can get the wireless client update by following a link in the show notes. Regardless of whether you install this patch, you need to ensure your wireless laptops are configured to attach to infrastructure networks only. Instructions to set this configuration with Windows XP are available at grc.com, and this link is also in the show notes. These instructions at Steve Gibson's website also include turning off broadcasting for wireless networks on the preferred list, as discussed in a Security Now podcast episode. And as always, laptops should run updated anti-malware and personal firewall software. And finally, for those of you who are wondering, Windows Vista reportedly does not have this problem. Well, that's it for this week. I'm hoping that I helped you make your network just a little bit stronger. And until next time, be careful what you click.